Hey, this is Joey Pants. And this is Danny Pants. And that's my dog, David, that just barked. And you're listening to No Kidding Me Too. And today we're going to try something new. Never been done before. Never been done. Never, ever. Throughout the universe, we're going to have part of our conversation with comedian, Emmy Award winning writer, and podcast pioneer, Greg Fitzsimmons. And then you get to listen to the rest of our conversation on his podcast, Fitzdog Radio. So it's a double banger. It's two mm-hmm. for one. Daniela, so I'm very excited to talk to this character because I absolutely, from the bottom of my heart, think that he he is incredibly talented, but he's way more fucked up than I am. <laughs> and and I think because of that, that's, that's the root of his talent. And I want to get to the bottom of it. So, All right. uh, Greg... How are you? Uh, I, it was uh, hopefully nice. I'm doing better than you're describing me as. I'm having a good day, I guess, because I'm not on the floor. You know, it's like, it's like what's his name? Um, uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Network news? Um, network, yeah. Peter, Peter Finch. Yeah, he was so brilliant in this movie. And it's a brilliant movie. It would be impossible for anybody to be in this movie and not be brilliant. But he died at the Beverly Hills Hotel about to give an interview with Sidney Lumet, the director. They were both nominated, and he died two days before the awards. Wow. Did he win? Talk about bad luck, because the vote, they they had already voted by then. Yeah. Well, dying doesn't necessarily guarantee you the Oscar, as we saw this year. Yeah, but but the good news is, is if I died... I would be, you know, I'd get my numbers up on IMDb. Yes, that would yes. be good. You know, hey, whatever you got to do to get, get the numbers to, up. Sometimes it takes some sacrifice. Get the numbers Joey. up. So, I want to talk to you. You know, we talked about um, the kind of traumas, the childhood traumas. What was your life like growing up? Uh, you have brothers, sisters. What's, what's well? I'm a Irish twin, so my brother, my brother and I are 13 months apart. So. We had a very tumultuous relationship growing up, a lot of fighting. Where did you grow up? In, uh, born in the Bronx, and then when I was about six, we moved to Tarrytown, New York, in Westchester County. Yeah, okay, So, but six. By, by the time you're six years old, you're baked. That's it. It's, it's all set it's in stone over. from there on. Right, yeah, Is that that's Freud. Freud would say, wrap it up. Here's your personality. Uh, so, yep. But it was, you know, my dad was uh, a very outgoing um, he was uh, on WNEW AM in New York for 20 years. He was a big radio announcer, so he was bigger than life. He was a tough guy, six foot two, and um, big drinker, big smoker, smoked three and a half packs a day, lived life. He was the kind of guy you could walk into any bar in Manhattan and somebody would yell out, Fitz, and come over and there'd be a big hug and he'd buy everybody a drink and... You know, and, and then you would go home and he would lock himself in the den and just smoke and brood. And there was this whole different personality that the rest of the world didn't understand if you ever complained that things weren't good. What are you talking about? You're the luckiest kid in the world. Your dad's Bob Fitzsimmons, you know? And not, which isn't to say we didn't have good times. There was also, you know, family trips and nights out and and things that were really great, but he was a depressed person who was an alcoholic, who he, he suffered uh, some pretty severe trauma as a child himself that he never dealt with, and we never knew about until after he died. Can you talk about what it was now? Um, he was molested, and it, was, it literally was not talked about until after he died, my mother told me, and he, he only told her about six months before he died. He died at 52 of a heart attack. And um, he mm. was, he hadn't spent a lot of time examining his life. I think he was afraid to. Sure. I think he didn't know that he could handle what was underneath there. And so. What year, what year did he die? 93. He was at, uh, in Rayo's in Harlem. He was uh, having dinner with my mom and uh, just boom, heart attack, just like that. So, so. Oh. You know, before that, I had started going to Al-Anon meetings because of him, and I had taken a little time apart from him, 
And so uh, it was very difficult because when he died, I hadn't spoken to him in like six months. And despite everything, we were very close growing up. And I had started doing comedy a few years before that. And he was like my biggest supporter. Um, I truly felt loved by him. And, and I thought he's the great, I still think he's one of the greatest people I've ever known. Um, but we didn't speak because I couldn't be around his drinking anymore. And so it was a very traumatic thing to go through grieving for him and um, feeling guilty that I had caused it, you know, that I was one of the reasons why he died, you know, and all that bullshit that you get into your head. Wow. Hearing... Greg, tell you the, his story, because yeah. that's exactly what I did. You'd walk into the room, Joey Pants, you know, and then you go home and he he locked. He's, you know, in his room, sleeping, just watching TV, you know, and I was always the one that would able would be the one to handle. Right. Him. Like a, we need dad for something. You have to go right. approach him. He'll, he, he'll say yes to you. He'll yeah. like you. And when you said like, oh, what are you talking about? Your home life is not great. Like, look at your dad's yeah. famous. Like, what are you talking about? You, you're rich and famous. And it's like, yeah. no, <laughs> we're not. Why don't you like have a conversation with me and like ask me, you know, other things. Don't just take the surface level. But, yeah, um, and that the love can be very layered, you know, that there can be, you can have, you know, one of the things, one of the types of therapy I've done is dialectical behavioral therapy, which says, I can feel this thing, I can feel this intense love, I can feel joy about this person, I can also, and also feel very pained, I can also feel very rejected sometimes, mm. and and to somehow live with these different dialectical feelings at the same time. I've never heard of that therapy, that's really interesting. The love thing, though, I always um, felt guilty because, I mean, you don't say, like, favorites, but I was my dad's favorite. Like, I, he could be a certain way with my brother and sisters, but I was, I never got that. I never got, I mean, he would, he would fight with my mom. So, like, my trauma comes from, like, sitting in a room, hearing them fight and, like, being paralyzed by that and, like, never wanting him to yell at me the way I saw him yelling right. at other people. But first, you know, we have this connection in this relationship that's very different than him and my other siblings. And I always felt guilty for that because they would like trash talk dad and be like, oh, dad's crazy. Da, da, da. And I'm sitting there like, he's always yeah. been really nice to me. I don't. <laughs> I have a younger you know? sister and she had the exact same experience. When, when me and my brother talk about my mm. father, she literally just goes, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I can't relate to that. You know, she didn't get, you know, because he used to hit us and, you know, there was a, mm. he had rage and we had a lot of, you know, deep, deep trauma from from a lot of that. And it wasn't just the physical beatings, but it was the uh, mentally coming after you um, in a way that I think maybe as a father, he didn't feel in control. He didn't feel he didn't feel like family was safe. And so I think when he yelled at you. He did it the way you would yell at somebody in a fit of rage after a car accident when they when they'd rear-ended you. He he didn't mm. yell at you like a child that you loved and wanted to protect ultimately. And so it was uh it, it really it left a mark. The the, the beautiful part is you're getting through, you know, you got you getting through it. The, you know, the idea for me is the, that that I have clinical depression. And it comes and when it comes I, I know how to surrender to it now. Um, I, I've learned healthier coping mechanisms uh, that that can immediately, you know, I, I go for get myself out of that bed is is the hardest thing in the world. It's like I heard Dick Cabot explain it once. It, as if, if if there was a magical elixir in a vial that was six feet away from the bed that you couldn't get out of, and and all you had to do was walk over and drink it, and it would be a miracle change, and you and your life would be better forever. You couldn't get yeah. to it. You couldn't get yeah. to it. When I started thawing out, it was a lot of work of changing a lot of behavior, but also. Once the the Vicodin, you know, the, the opioids 
certainly after six months of getting that out of my system, uh, I, I, my depression wasn't as severe because I was anesthetized. Of course I couldn't feel right. anything. But the, the other thing was, is what, as my doctor explained, it was the idea of familiar misery versus unfamiliar happiness. I can't feel happy. I don't know what happy feels like. Misery has a weight to yeah. it. I can identify it. It's it's familiar. It's, Your feet are on the ground. Warm. You can feel the ground under yeah. you. Yeah. The the idea of acting as if they tell you know they tell you that in acting school, but not, then I was hearing it in in therapy and you know in in these twelve step programs. Yeah, fake it till you make it. Yeah, and I haven't gotten there yet. That's the thing. <laughs> I've actually told Daniela for years that she should be d doing the Al-Anon meetings. Um, yeah, and, and that's also something I've always felt guilty about going to because it's like I... I mean, I t I've told all know. my kids, not just Danny. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, um, Danny's receptive in, in, in having the conversation. Some of the other kids are like, eh, yeah. you know, I, I, you know, don't go all I'm fine, analytical me on me. Here we go. I was just going to ask you... Um, what your coping mechanisms were with that trauma and how they've changed as you've gotten older and, and as the like whole mental health conversations have changed, like growing up did, was mental health ever like a reason why anything was happening or was it just dad's drinking? And that's why this is all. It going wasn't on. even dad's drinking. Wasn't even, I didn't even know what alcoholism was. I don't know. It was so around me. Mm. Everybody that I knew growing up, had a parent that was an alcoholic. It's almost like alcoholic kids find each other. And in the town I grew up in, you know, my friend Brian's mother, she was a single mom. She worked at the hospital. She kept a bottle of vodka in her closet. She come, came home every night and drank it. And my other friend who lived, who had a, who was wealthy, lived on the hill. And every time he walked in his house, his mother was on the couch drinking a highball and drinking a novel. But they were both drunk at the end of the night. Every one of us, and I don't know what it was that we found each other, but um, when I finally started dating a girl who was an alcoholic, she sort of explained what it was to me and said that I should try Al-Anon. And I was probably about 19, and I walked into a meeting, and a couple people qualified and spoke, and I was sobbing. I was like, oh my God, mm. it's not just me. This is This is how... These feelings that I'm having, there's a reason for them. And it's not because I'm weak. It's not because I'm bad. It's not because I'm to blame. And so I started going, I'd go to two or three meetings a week for a couple of years. And it was it was a profound change. I started going to therapy because of that. And I have depression that I've dealt with my whole life. I wrote a book about, um, it's called Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. And it's about... The fact that my mother saved all my bad report cards, all of the letters home, all the times I got arrested for, you know, drunkenness and fighting. And and she saved it all in a shoebox. And I found it in my aunt's basement in the Bronx. And it was like this trophy case because it was funny to them. Like when you fucked up, it was almost like, ah, a, it, it, it was just a good story. It was always just a good story. And so in the book, I talk a lot about um, dealing with my my depression and where it came from. And I think that my process now is like um, meditation, exercise, and I think having a wife that is just the most empathetic, understanding, wonderful. I, I don't want to be one of those people that does an interview and sings the praises of their spouse, but she really is like a very incredible person. And, and I, I think that I look at her as a reward for the work I've done. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have let somebody like that into my life if I hadn't done the work. And at the same time, she helps me maintain and grow, uh, in, in this, you know, call it recovery or, or, or just maintenance at this point of my depression. I like that word for it. Maintenance. Yeah. It's just like, like you take your car in to get checked out. You gotta t you gotta maintain yourself, right? And when you start, and I yeah. think the thing I realized with twelve step, because I also quit drinking about twenty five years ago, is that um, you look for the red flags, and you look for if I'm in traffic and I'm honking my horn and I'm cursing at somebody, 
that's a red flag. What's mm -hmm. really going on? Why are you really angry? What feelings are you not dealing with right now? And I think in, in the meetings, you start to realize that um, uh, the maintenance is about just just paying attention to yourself and being an observer of, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy. You're, you are a witness to your thoughts and your feelings. And then mm -hmm. you have to do what it takes to get try to get straight again. The red flag thing is so interesting because I was thinking the other day about this moment I had where I was driving to Greenport. We were selling our house and my boy, I got like 20 minutes out of the city and my boyfriend was like, I left my phone in your car. So I had to drive back. And then I left again, calls again. I'm now like 20, 30 minutes out. My backpack is in your car. <laughs> so I had to turn around. And for some reason, I broke. I started sobbing and screaming in my car. And I just was like, why? Like, I wasn't even mad. I had to go back. But it just like broke me. And I was, I'd never, that was like a different emotion I've never experienced before. And I think it was like all the pandemic yeah. stuff finally just like come, coming right. out in different ways. But I like the the noticing of the red flags and like being like, well, okay, what's actually going on under the surface is a really good way to like notice yourself and take care of yourself. And I also think that having a serious relationship um, is something that keeps you honest because uh, you got to show up for that person. You owe that to them to to to, to not mm -hmm. spend all that time alone in a room ignoring your family or your loved ones and. Um, and I think that you, it's a challenge that that's, that's your, you, you gotta, sh you gotta be there for them and not abandon them. And, and so you gotta do whatever it takes to do yeah. that. You know, listening to you guys talk right now, the thing that strikes me is that I don't have to, because it, it feels fo foreign to me. I, I, I just spent three weeks with, with my wife visiting our oldest daughter and, her family and and four grandkids, grandboys, um, and the, and it's a, just a natural maternal pleasure being with family, and that I can intellectually feel, but there's something missing in it, you know that that's been stomped out in my DNA because of whatever pain those painful moments. Uh, you know, the, the fear, you know, the fear of losing somebody or loving someone too much because they might not always right. be there. But to, uh, you know, to, to, to do it and to be there for my grandboys and to be patient. My, my oldest grandson is, is autistic and we bought bicycles. They, they were on training wheels. And uh, so he's seven, uh, he's eight years old and the other, uh, and uh, the other one is six. The older one, who's autistic doesn't like change you know and so it's like where are where are the training wheels and uh you're gonna let you're gonna let go of me no i'm not yes you are don't let go you're gonna let go of me i don't give me a and it's like i'm not trained for yeah. this um and it's like no i what, what i i wouldn't do that you know I, and i the intellectual conversations with them well uh, the other one you know, got up and, and rode the bike. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't get my oldest one uh, to come back to that bike for the rest of the trip. It just sat there. I started riding it. Um, but uh, so, how did that? How oh, did that you, make you feel? That you could? Did you feel that you couldn't show up for him? Is that what you felt like? Like you couldn't? No, I I, I didn't feel like. It's just the way it was. It was like. He wasn't ready. He, 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 you know, every day we talked about it. Come on, let's, would you like to, let's give it a try. Yeah. And no, I don't want to. Uh, or, or he would ignore me. And it's, you know, it's just the way his brain works. Right. Uh, and, and, and I, I thought I just got to let it, I got to let right. it go. And, 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 and not feel guilty because, the younger one wants to get on the bike. Uh -huh. It was the most important part of my day. The most enjoyment that I got out of that is when the boys came yeah. home. And then, you know, I have identical twin grandsons that are like 19 months old. 
and they are terrors. They're mm-hmm. like, you know, bam, bam. Yeah. They're double bam, bams. Uh, and it's like, I couldn't be around them because they, they would climb up and it was like, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. It was like, I was just waiting for, for the accident yeah, to happen. Right, right. So I know it's amazing when you have found- little kids because I, I've got two. They're, they're older now, but when they're young, all you do is scream, relax, calm down. Rela-. And meanwhile, it's like, they're just trying to exploit, <laughs> they're trying to like show joy. You know, they're expressing life. And we as adults are going, stop. We're just trying to clamp them down. Yep. So as a comedian, your dad was also funny on his radio show? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was, it was talk radio. So it was back before AM talk radio was political. So he would have, like Mayor Koch used to call in every morning. They were good friends. And uh-huh. so he would talk. I'd probably listen to your yeah, dad. Yeah, he would, he would mix it up because, you know, Koch was further right than he was. So they would get into it a little bit. And then he would have like, you know, the Clancy brothers, if they were in town, would come in and uh, Sinatra once in a while. Um, you know, it was big band, Sinatra, Vic Damone. It was all 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 those old Guido singers that you loved. And uh, and it was just like a feel. It was like a hang. And he was a funny guy who talked about his life and he was a real ball buster. And so he would do these benefit shows like anybody that was having a charity event could ask my father and he would put on his tuxedo and he would MC it because he had his jokes and he had his stories. And then he would find out who the priest was that was in charge or the principal that was in charge and he would bust their balls. And it was stand up comedy. It's like, I realized like I, he wanted to be a stand up comic. And so I used to go watch him all the time when I was a little kid. Nothing made me happier than seeing my dad and a room full of people all laughing and paying attention to him and seeing the joy the, that he got out of it. And so, um, yeah, I think it was a big influence in the, the choices I made with my career, going into, you know, podcasting and doing stand up. And you were a, a comedy writer on The Ellen Show for yep, a while, too, yep. right? That was uh, speaking of joy and dysfunction. <laughs> well, it was so fun. As I was just thinking, I was like, you know, because a lot of comics, you know, have um, trauma from childhood, a lot of actors. And I just, I don't know why I never, like, had this thought. I was like, it's just kind of like going from one tumultuous, toxic home to another. Oh, yeah. Like, that's a lot, lot of old is. feelings came up working <laughs> on that show. A lot of. Yeah. I was motivated by I'll show them I'm not a piece of shit. You know. Yeah, what was your motivation? It's motivator? like just you wait Henry Higgins. You yeah, remember yeah, that song? Yeah, right. You know, I'll show them. Did you have any of that? I think it was more that I'm going to sh- I'm going to make myself successful enough that people can't see me as a loser. It, it wasn't so much mm. that I'm going to be a superstar. Like I always joke around that like I've crawled my way to the middle and I'm staying right there. It's the sweet spot. You know, if you're, <laughs> if you're the lead of the show, if you're James Gandolfini and the show gets canceled, that's your failure. But if you're Joey pants and it gets canceled, Hey, I was just season three and four. It's not my fault. <laughs> I get to work on another show now. So that's how, that's always been my approach is just like my insecurity is that, I am going to be seen as a failure. And so I've worked really hard to have like a foundation of a career that is beyond reproach, that I have the respect of my peers and that I make a comfortable living for my family, that people can't judge the car that I drive. I don't drive a fancy car. I don't drive a shitty car. I'm just a guy that kind of made it. He worked hard. He's a man of his word. He's a quality guy. And, uh, and, and so and, and, and not that I really am that guy. I don't feel like that guy. You know, I don't cheat on my wife. <laughs> I want to cheat on my wife. I would love to cheat on my wife, but I won't because I love her. <laughs> I would like to punch people in the face all the time and I don't do it. Does that make oh. me a good guy? No, just a guy who doesn't want to be seen as a fucking no. asshole. No, that's a, that makes you a good guy because we all have these impulses and people are getting so fucking mean yeah. now. You know, in mm-hmm. fact, I I rather I I was I had bullies. You know, they would come in at me, and eventually we'd get into a fight. And you know, and if I caught them in the nose, uh, they that they, they they'd be kissing my ass. Every bully that I finally that was like a light went off, and you can't take any more, and you just start swinging. At the end of it, 
even if you lose, and I lost many times, they respect you because you had the balls to go yeah, after Yeah, but them. you're talking about now, being a 17-year-old in New Jersey in the 70s. I'm talking about being a 55-year-old bald guy walking around Venice Beach with kids and insurance. <laughs> I, the last fight I had was after the last drink I had. So uh, I was getting into fist fights well into my yeah, 50s. Yeah, wow. In Venice. Yeah, oh, that's... Cr- I lived on Electric Avenue Did in you Venice. really? I lived on... Yeah, you know, behind the Dude, brig. That's the, I, live, that I live right behind the brig. I live on those walk streets back there. Yeah, 1514, Lily Court. Oh, no shit. You know, with the, 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 the house, that little bungalow with the clock. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's I know that I house. Yeah, and then I, I lived on Grant Avenue. Uh-huh. I lived I lived on um, Venezia Avenue. Venezia is literally across the street from me. What are you doing? you. I. Yeah. yeah. Now that now that everybody in America knows where I live, thanks, Joe. You want should we pin down an actual address? I was guessing. <laughs> but by the way, when, bleep it when out. You go to Venice Boulevard. There's a like a rounded building. It used to be a a barrio, a grocery store. This is Marco. Marco was two years old, so this is thirty eight okay. years ago. So I had to go get a container of milk, and I'm walk. I walk in, and there's a guy. I see. The two people that own the joint, Asian people, and there's a guy with a gun on them, and they're emptying the cash register, and I'm behind him. I'm literally two and a half feet behind him, and he's got the gun. I can see the gun. I see his head. I can, and I just, and, and I see that they see me, but they don't pull his look to see what's behind him. And I tiptoed. I like stepped back out, and I ran back. <laughs> to my house screaming call 911 <laughs> but that's the close i mean that, that was very close to being shot oh venice is getting bad again it got really good and now all of a sudden it's just it, oh my god this crime but you know what like my wife is from she's from manhattan and like we both i lived in new york city for so many years and it's like a little bit of crime keeps you honest you know it's not the worst thing in the world <laughs> Yeah, when I moved to Venice, it, it reminded me of Hoboken. Yeah, right. You know, it's like, and 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 now it's only going to get worse. I mean, where we live, my neighbor just was it two weeks ago? They robbed two of his cars out of his driveway at three at three in the morning, and he just found they found one of them in Danbury, Connecticut, with bullet holes. No in shit. It. You, yeah, you know, so things are getting oh, bad gonna, when your house, when your neighbor in Connecticut had two of his six cars stolen. Sounds rough. That's right. The <laughs> good Sounds ones, rough, the Joey. really good ones, got stolen. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh so what is a what is a, a guy like you end up leaving to go to Connecticut for? That seems like kind of like uh, these fucking kids because they because of all of these diagnoses, yeah. you know, dyslexia. But I wasn't diagnosed until like no, you were already like I was going doing really bad. You were going school. You were going to get getting special help. What did they call that school? The Sylvan Learning Sylvan Center. Learning Sylvan Learning Center. And I Yeah, but because but you didn't know why. Why I, like I couldn't I could barely read. Like your friend Larry, Larry taught me how to read with hooked on Wait, phonics. Wait, so how bad is yeah. how bad is your reading? Did you were you able to get that like testing where they don't time you and you can take it for Yeah, so it wasn't until we moved to Connecticut. That's what at least what mom told me. Like I think after not even a week of being with my new third grade teacher in Connecticut. She was like, I think your daughter's dyslexic. And they're like, what? And that's how you found out you were dyslexic, right, yep, Dad? I found, yeah. I yeah. literally didn't learn how to read or I couldn't learn how to read. Uh, and so I just, I took the attitude like, fuck this. And I remember like in the fourth grade, every new year, I would sit in the very front of the class in front of the teacher's desk to get it over with. You know, they would they would say, okay, read this. Everybody would get a chance of reading the book. And I just wanted them to know that I couldn't read to just get it over the over the anxiety of it all. I had the opposite thing. Yeah, you have the opposite to break your ass. I would sit there if they were going to call on me to read and I'd I'd make sure I knew how to say every single word. I'd ask my friend, how do you how do you pronounce this one? How do you pronounce that one? Okay, okay, okay. And then I my body would heat up and my Uh, stomach would turn. I know that. They called on me. 
Do you have any learning uh, disabilities? No, I mean, I, I, the ADD obviously was difficult, and and that's why I brought up my book earlier. Is that there was so many letters sent home about me staring out the window, falling asleep in class, mm. because I just once I lost the let, you know, with with ADD, you can't you can't stay focused on something that you're not excited about, and that's the thing that they're realizing yeah. now with ADD is the way to treat it is to find the thing that excites the kid or the adult and let them engage with that. Um, that will bring about success mm -hmm. because ADD can be a gift. I have an ability to hyper-focus. I roasted somebody last night. And so to get ready for a roast, you have to write for like two or three days straight. And I have this little office in Santa Monica and I lock the door, I make a pot of coffee and I can sit there for eight hours and I can write because I know that if I don't, I'm going to bomb in front of a room full of people mm. that are network executives and agents. And so they're all going to be at this roast. It's a high profile roast and I can get shit done. Um, now, if you tell me there's going to be a pandemic and it would be smart if you wrote a couple of feature films while you had this downtime, it's not going to happen. It's not going to get done. I was just going to ask you how you how you handled well. the pandemic. Like not well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have my I have three podcasts, and so that kept me a little bit busy. But otherwise, I had I had all this guilt that I should be learning French, I should be exercising, I should be doing this, and so I exercised just enough to stay sane, but not enough to like actually, you know, be in shape in a in a real way. And I just ha I half-assed my way through the year. I think I didn't realize how depressed I was until I started. I hadn't I wasn't in therapy, and I. I got back into therapy a few months ago, and it's been very helpful kind of coming back out of it. But um, no, I, uh, I'm a 55-year-old straight white guy in Hollywood. This is not a great time as a writer to get any work. It's not a great time as an actor to get any work. And so, you know, unless you've got a resume with 250 projects on it like you do. But for somebody like me, it's, um, it's a struggle. And I don't, I'm not resentful of that because as a straight white guy, we had a pretty good run. We had from forever until yep. about a couple years ago. So I saved some money. Mm -hmm. I got my house. I'm in good shape. Uh, but at the same time, in terms of staying busy in the business, it's, it's more of a grind now than it was before. And this pandemic didn't help. Well, the good news mm -hmm. is if there's any silver lining is you only look 25. Really? Yeah. That's nice to hear. Yeah. How old are your kids? My son is 20. He's in college in Chicago. And then my daughter is a senior in high school. And um, he's pretty intact, but she has, she has ADD and she has depression and she sees therapy for that. And she's been, she's been a fucking soldier dealing with it. She shows up. She does That's the amazing. work. She takes the therapy seriously. And she went from really having a, a really struggling to now she's she's in a really good space. And I'm very proud of her. And I think part of it is I think that we have a relationship, which it seems like the two of you have, which is I'm very honest with her about my depression and my ADD. She has the same bucket of shit that I have. And I think by seeing that mm -hmm. I've dealt with it and how I've dealt with it, I think it helps her take it on without any stigmas attached. Yeah. Did your wife have um, like a traumatic or tumultuous childhood or like, you know, she, you talked about how empathetic she is and amazing. And, and I feel like sometimes you have that. You can go one or two ways. You can come out like my dad did or you could come out like right. my mom did. Like, you know, just which is what how you describe your wife is how I think of my mom. It's just like this amazing wonderful person and my mom has had her struggles but she's somehow just been able to just care for everybody and herself so i'm wondering if your wife is similar well she was the product a tough divorce i think when she was about maybe eight or so her parents had a very bad divorce um but that being said her um her mom was a mental health nurse in the city hospitals and she's she also worked as a therapist and then her dad was uh uh, a Freudian analyst for a while, and then he became a professor. So she comes from um, therapy, and her aunt is a is a nurse. She comes from you know her so mm -hmm. so she comes from that world. But I just think that 
naturally she's just somebody that should have gone she should have become a therapist and um she mm. kind of missed her calling with that and i think that family just became her profession she dove in you know i was on the road doing stand up you know 30 weekends a year and there was no way she could have a full time job with my schedule and so she was a stay at home mom and um has been such an asset to my kids because she was there for for them and um and now she's coming out of that and she just got certified as a um a uh, postnatal doula so she works with women right after they have their babies oh, so she cool. had to study a lot of uh, she got certified as a uh, uh breastfeeding co- uh, consultant and and so she's like she's a very nurturing person yeah i was just going to say that mm-hmm. she's She's continuing that nurturing mother, motherly uh, behavior with with new babies. Yeah, yeah, and and I think she's gonna be a good she's gonna be a good grandmother as soon as, as soon as my daughter has a baby, which she seems to want to have right away, even though she's seventeen. I'm like, all right, slow down. <laughs> That's how I used to feel. I was like, I want to have six kids, and then I babysat a lot. And then grew up, and I was like, I could wait until I'm I like think, 35, I think you're, yeah. and have two. I think your thought, daughter too should consider therapy. Uh, you know, becoming a therapist um, uh, because that's that's a a job um, description that's really so so needed, and it's going to be revolutionized now because of of Zoom and people being able to talk to their doctors uh, on the computer. Yeah, there's. I mean, you can't get a therapist in L.A. right now. They're they're all booked. I don't know how the rest of the country is, but like, it took mm-hmm. me a month to find a therapist that wasn't fully booked, and that's only going to grow. I think uh-huh. this pandemic, I think, brought a lot of people to a point where they started seeking help for the first time. I think it brought a lot yep. of people back to seeking help, and I think that it's a good sign. Look, look at the political world. Look at the environment. Look at all the stresses. Look at the school shootings. Look at there's so many things that are bringing people to the brink right now. And I don't see any of those things going away in the next generation. So, yeah, we need people that are going to help others get through this right now. That's why we decided to do the podcast. I mean, we talked about it like a year before COVID and then COVID happened and we're like, now's the time because we just have to talk to, because if you can't talk to a therapist, you should be able to talk to your friends and you should be able to talk to your family or at least listen to other people talking. So you just know you're not alone. Yeah. Um, Podcasts have been something that uh, uh, there's been a lot of growth with podcasts. I think they, they bring ideas to people. They bring normalcy to people. And, and I think a lot of therapy or 12 step programs is about not feeling alone. And when people like you can share what's going on with you in an honest way, it can change lives. It's really powerful. There's a positive aspect of, of belonging. What I, what I noticed in the 12-step program, because there's 60, 63 different types of 12-step programs, uh, you know, children of, uh, behavioral, emotions anonymous. Uh, but the idea of the tribalism uh, what I noticed in the beginning is how helpful it was to hear people talk about what it felt like to be me. You know, that I, they didn't look like me. They didn't come from the same background, but I felt them, you know. But when I heard somebody once say, I feel you, you know, for the first time, that expression, I understood that. But also then there becomes this tribal thing like the normal people out there. We're the alcoholics. Like I'm an alcoholic, you know the old Irish yeah. guys who uh, I met. In my, you know, t- toward the end, it was like some of the originals. And where I live in Connecticut is right near where Bill W. started. Uh, you know, I went to his house, which is nine miles from where we live. But but a lot of the sponsors, like my sponsor, his sponsor was a, you know, Bill W. was his sponsor. So all of these guys, and it becomes a club. Yeah. You know, and and then a lot of a lot of their the talks become like stand up. Right. You know, I, I you go and they go talk talk some other other place, and and it's it it's the same material. But the idea of being a part of something uh, that's a very positive yeah. thing if it can get help you to stop drinking right. or drugging or whatever it is. On the negative side, it's the ability to be a part of an extremist 
ideology. Right. All extremes are dude, horrible. Dude, 30 or 40 percent of Americans believe some part of QAnon is real. 30 to 40 percent. Right. Because they because they want it to be yep. real. They, they need it to be real. Um, the, the other thing that I've been thinking about lately is the connection. Like, you know, that 30 to 40 percent. They're probably abusing something. They're probably on something. They're not right-minded. You know, when I was absolutely bonkers, crazy out of my mind, I thought everybody else was crazy because I wasn't hurting nobody. Yeah. Leave me the fuck alone. Right. You'd also hear something on the news and take it to an extreme. You know, you'd watch a clip that said sugar is, and, and listen, sugar is bad, <laughs> but this is the example I have. But like sugar's bad. He would go and throw out everything in the house that had sugar. But then sugar's not that bad anymore. Everything's back. Like, you know, he'd take one little truth without looking into it for himself. And then, you know, which everyone does, but he took it to an extreme. Um, I think especially during a pandemic where you don't have people to bounce off of at the water cooler, where you're just sitting alone ingesting information in concentrated doses. And then if you're... And then the, you know, there's this, there's this documentary called um, Social, The Social Dilemma. Have you seen that? Yeah, I love that documentary. But it just shows that, like, once you start searching for things, how it starts feeding you more like-minded information. The algorithms, yeah. and they, they, know, they know what you're searching right. for. They know, they know what, before we know what. They know what the answer we want to hear. Right, so you're no longer getting um, a balanced perspective on things. You're getting a very singular, pre-selected uh, set of data. Yeah. I remember in, um, I took a po- political science class my like senior year of college, and I wish I took it my first semester because I, I may have changed majors. I, it was just fascinating, but I remember learning about, I don't remember all the details, but she said that news... Years ago, if you if a news station did five minutes on the left side of things, they right. had to do five minutes. Yeah, on freedom the right of side. information or something, wasn't it? But they realized it would make them more money if right. it wasn't that way. So they like lobbied and changed the laws, and that's you know the the start to all this horrible stuff. But I, I was just fascinated by that and not surprised well that's why fox news no longer calls itself a news channel because if they did they would have to still um they would have to give out uh equal parts to the to the other side and so uh, i think uh tucker carlson or bill o'reilly one of those guys was being sued for information that he had put out and he literally said in the case this is not a news channel. We're not held up to those same standards. Yeah. What about that that lady, that, the lawyer who who's being sued by by the uh, tally uh, organization, uh, the computers that they said were spitting out, uh, eating up the Trump duly elected, and that they cheated. It's a big big law yeah. case, and she her defense was everybody in their right mind knew I that's was right. lying. That's right. Yeah. It's a, it's an alternative set of facts. That's all. And the algorithms tell them and, and that's what they do. Yeah. Uh, but it's becoming so dangerous. I, I don't see a way out of this. I, 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 I think, mm-hmm. uh, I think this is, is like, it has to fall apart. It what has hap- to what happens completely. in, uh, what's happening in Israel right now. You know, it's two different sides of a of, of an opinion, and it's like blood curdling, and people have already been hurt. You know, uh, you know, they they uh, they say that it didn't happen, but January sixth, it happened. You know, it wasn't like the moon landing where they may believe it that really happened. Yeah. You know, the insurrection really happened, and you've got these guys, these you know, congressmen saying that everybody's overreacting. Yeah, uh, I mean, you look, you look what happened to uh, to uh, what's her name, Cheney, getting thrown out of the uh, of the Senate. I mean, that means that the whole Republican Party is now subscribed to Trump's ideology that this was a stolen election. I mean, there are sixty lawsuits that all dispute that there was any problems with the voting, and yet not a single member of the Senate is allowed to step out. 
and say that it was a that it was a fair election. That's insanity. The problem with the idea of you know this democracy, this this experiment, is built on trust, which is such a fragile foundation. The Russians have been working on this. The idea is 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 that Russian um, propaganda has never been to get you to believe what I want you to believe. It's only always been to cause doubt so you don't believe anybody. Yeah. And that's what mm. these, that's what the, the idea is, is that I am convinced that the Republican Party understands correctly that they can no longer win legitimately fair and square, that they have to be a minority uh, uh, rule uh, dictatorship, uh, you know, an oligarchy like the Russian model. Right. And so that they're going to have to dismantle democracy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell has said flat out he's spending 100% of his energy right now just trying to negate everything on uh, Biden's agenda. He, he doesn't have programs he's trying to put forward. He doesn't have an alternative budget he wants to get passed. He just wants to negate. They want to destroy. They want to create chaos and doubt. And... It it makes people angry. It makes the average. I mean, you can see why Jan January 6th happened, because if you're in a news bubble and you really believe that, you know, socialists are taking over the country and they want to get rid of all police and all these things that they're blowing out of proportion, you're going to get angry. And, and, and the people that are on the fringe of that are going to are going to you know, mount insurrections. The saddest part of it all well, is that the people are angry, too, but the people that are on the fringe. Are are acting against their right, own best exactly. interests. They're just you know they're cutting off their noses, despite their face. Yeah. That's it. It's like they're they are losing. You know these programs that President Biden, in in a hundred and ten days, has got something like fifty percent of Americans, at least one vaccination, <laughs> at least. I mean they spent hundreds of billions of dollars to right side all of this stuff because the other guy was saying it was, you know, was, was just looking to get all of this payback from these corporations uh, that wanted to get their deals in place for the vaccine beforehand. Right. Exactly. So God, the God that, that, that they trust this is a, the cult personality is, is money. It's, it's Bitcoin, whatever the fuck you want to call it. It's about value. You know, what's in it for me? There's 400 American families that have all of the billions. Yeah, that's right. And they've got the bottom 50% voting for them and carrying out their marching orders because they scare them. You know, they get them into a state of fear. And then once you scare the population, you can get them to do anything you want them to do. And none of this would be a problem if that's right. <laughs> just to bring it back we always end up dad we're gonna start a political podcast for you <laughs> well it's a, but, you know, it's a know, part of not for nothing part of it is day. part of this it's a part of my everyday daniela hearing like you guys just talk about that and like oh, what was it i think Greg, you said something and i was just like oh my god Oh, the fact that like Mitch McConnell, his own his only agenda is just to like squash everything Biden does. But that's been this is why but I that's can't been watch an the news. Daniela, that's been an agenda. I know. For... But here's the thing. Every time I say something like that, you're like, but that's the way it is. But no, that's how no, it is. But it, it's like oh. they don't have an agenda. Used to the Republicans used to stand for yeah. something, you know, fiscal responsibilities. They, they they had an agenda. But since Newt Gingrich, that was like the contrarian. It's always been about the contrarian and and it, it's completely manipulating. And and I think mm -hmm. that the newscasters on I don't care what channel you listen to, they're all making a fortune. It's irresponsible. Oh, yeah. They call it the big lie. That doesn't really sum it up. You know, it's a manipulating, earth shattering manipulation. And any one of us that did that would be in prison yeah. right now. And 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 you see this is happening where you know crime is rising. You walk, you know, drive 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 down Venice Boulevard and see the 10 people. Uh, you know, I was sleeping at my boyfriend's on the Your your father is right there. It, 
<laughs> oh, please. You little hua. <laughs> he is the worst when it comes to that stuff. He used to tell me all the time I should be dating, you know, I shouldn't be dating just one guy. I should have multiple. You know, I, I should uh, date really? older men. Marry first ah. for money, then for love. I'm still mad at uh, this boyfriend. I remember. She's this guy she's honestly, with now, she's in love with, you know, he can't rub two nickels together. <laughs> I remember one time when I was like about to leave the house and my dad was like, Daniela, pull your shirt up a little bit. You're never going to look this good again in your life. <laughs> He's like, flaunt what you got, girl. <laughs> I made a bet. I, I, had, I had this thing with, with all of my daughters. Uh, I, I got to abbreviate it, but it's like it started with. I can abbreviate it. Yeah, for you, you tell the story then. If I stayed a virgin and stayed away from drugs and alcohol till I was twenty-one years old, I'd get ten thousand dollars in a car. Really? And it worked on. So, the, so the first daughter it, at eight, you know, right before graduating high school, she said, "Look, I'm going to give. I'm going to lose the bet. I'm going to sleep with with my boyfriend." Uh, and and so Nancy and I said, "Don't tell your sister." So then we played it out so that Daniela, when Melody was like a senior, uh, you know, at, at at nineteen, you know, a sophomore in college, she said, "I lost the bet." So then Danny, the same thing, but but Danny, I knew was very competitive. So and same thing, with I was going to win. She's going to win. So I said, "Hey, look, you know, this is a this is a life lesson. You can't trust anybody, not even your father." So I only did this to keep you a virgin till you're eighteen. Now you can do what the fuck you want, but I'm not buying you a car. And, and if you want a new car, then you know, fuck somebody. Now for that's not grand. how it went down. He said I could get a car. He said you can. Yeah. He's like, if you go to a state school. Another reason why not to you trust can have anybody. Sex and I'll buy you a car. You should have just said, Dad. Yeah. I, but, um, I, you should have said, Dad. I found this guy that'll give me ten thousand dollars in a car if I have sex with him. Yeah, that's. <laughs> he would have said great. <laughs> by the way, so. He would have said, "Just wear a condom." So, so these, um, so these three daughters of mine, my three daughters, each one of them came to me and said, "Dad, I'm no longer a virgin." That was the whole point to be open and honest about it, and to be able to, like, you know, have the conversation, and whether it's right or not, but to put a more value on. It just for a responsible reason, not because virginity right. is this like beautiful, wonderful thing. Like it was never like make sure you're in, like in love and has to be this magical thing. It's just like make sure you're respected and you know what you're doing and that you know it's something that's only going to happen once. And talk to us. What about did I it. say about Cinderella and wearing glass slippers? Uh, the glass slipper will break and <laughs> she'll start bleeding. Yeah. <laughs> so so you you know, walk on your two feet and don't find some prince charm, charming that's gonna you know break your heart because there are they, they don't exist yeah you know and, and women that wear glass slippers you wind Bleed. up in the emergency room you know it's it's an interesting change that's happened because I have a daughter now who's seventeen and uh, I don't want to get into her personal stuff but just. The communication that we have with her is like you. It's very honest, including drinking, drug use, whatever. It's all on the table. And it puts you in a position where the previous generation, it was it was cops and robbers. You know, you hid everything. You tried to get away with what you could. You tried to police what you could. And that was considered um, behavior modification was I'm going to stop you from doing this. And we realize, this next generation realizes, that don't work. They're going to do it anyway. And why not enlist them mm -hmm. to be uh, part of the same truth where you can maybe guide them, support them. You know, if they get into trouble, they'll come to you because they trust you. It's all, it's all about acceptance. And, and also the math, you know, the, the biological math. Like, okay, so drug addict, alcoholic. Uh, so was your grandfather. So you got a pretty good chance of being that, you know, and if you do drugs, you're going to really like it. That's the, you know, so best not to ever, you know, try not to, because if you really like it, you could open up a real Pandora's box there. Uh, my, yeah, I didn't drink till I was 19 because yeah. of, of that. And my father, Florio, my biological father, as it turns out, when I was when I was 16 or 17, uh, I remember him coming into the kitchen. He says, come here, I want to talk to you. 
And and my father was in the heroin business from the time he was ten, because his father was a barber, and uh, and you know it was legal <coughs> until twenty nine to sell marijuana and heroin and cocaine. That was some of the things that you provided at barbershop. No kidding. Yeah, and my grandfather, turns out, was a you know, stone cold junkie. Uh, so my father was born in nineteen ten. So. He sits me down at the kitchen table and he takes out the pistol and he puts the pistol on the table and he says, I want to talk to you. He says, look, you know, a lot of your your friends is, you know, whatever, smoking dope, whatever you do, you come into this house. I'm going to know what you did and how much you took because I grew up with this shit. And and when you do, if you do, I'm going to take this pistol and I'm going to shoot you in both your knees and every time you take a step, you're going to think about the mistake you made. Wow! And so I didn't venture out. I remember, I remember last year of high school, 2001 Space Odyssey. And it was like everybody said you had to be high to see this thing. And the peer pressure in Fort Lee, New Jersey, my friends had mescaline. So I had to take a tab with my friends. And I ran to the bathroom and shoved my fingers down my throat and threw it up. And pretended that I was high when I watched uh-huh. the movie. I enjoyed the movie very much, even though I wasn't high. Um, so I was kind of like between a rock and a hard place because I was way more afraid of my father than I was my friends. I mean, I would be afraid of yeah. someone who said they'd shoot yeah. me in the kneecaps. We've been talking for a long time. We have? How long have we been talking, Robert? This show's been on for an hour now. What about the other one? The Ferguson? Now we've been, we've been going on for just about two hours. Oh, good, because I want to be longer than him. <laughs> I'm very competitive. Yes, I think, yeah, Every guy yes. wants to be. Yeah. <laughs> Our show's clocking in a little longer, absolutely. All right, you win. Well, this has been, this has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, I really enjoy this. I, I love meeting both you guys, and I, I love seeing your dynamic with each other. It makes me... Uh, Makes me look forward to what me and my daughter's relationship will be like when when she's older. It'll be great. It sounds like you're a good dad. I'm trying. I'm trying. I think I just show up. You just show up and hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. and expect the worst. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> she also sounds like a great, yeah, a great yeah, she's kid, a good so. kid, and she's uh, you know, she's got a boyfriend now. I just met him for the first time. That's the first boyfriend she's brought home, and he was. Uh, she told me she coached him on how to shake my hand firmly and look me in the eye, which he did. And I, nice. I didn't say that to her, but I said, the first thing I said to her after I met him was, he sh- he had a firm handshake and he looked me in the eye. And she goes, that's exactly what I coached I him I love on. her. <laughs> yeah. She's really uh, yeah. smart. She's got to meet. Your 17-year-old needs to talk to my 22-year-old. Uh, you know, I, she's got a boyfriend that spent, that lived in our apartment downstairs for what, four weekends before I got to meet him? Really? Well, for, it's not a boyfriend. It's yeah. a different thing. It's a friend. Oh, it's a boy a friend. who's a friend. It's a, it's a friend. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like you might want a nanny cam down there. See what's going on. <laughs> well, that's the last thing I want to see. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Is it me. all right to look you up when I'm when I'm in in, Cal- in Venice? Dude, next let's time? take a stroll down Electric over to Abbott Kinney. Two bald guys walking down yeah. the street. Make sure you punch someone in That's the face. That's right. I would love that. Yeah, I look forward to meeting you someday. All right, good. Thank all you. All right. Bye. Take care. We were just talking for two hours with Greg, and it was amazing. It flew by. Yeah. Like after like what I thought was five minutes, I would like look at the clock and I was like, oh, it's been an hour. Wow. And, you know, being on his we're going to be on his show. He's on our show. That was really fun doing like a two parter like that. It's like a mini series. Yeah. And he was he was wonderful and, and open and honest. Like all our guests are. I feel like you have to be to be on the show. You kind of get it. Well, I hope I hope that we uh, we uh, encourage that. I mean, that our openness with each other encourages um uh, many of us are, you know because we're we're ed- entertainers mm-hmm. and uh so you know there's that on switch that sometimes you could turn off and be intimate with each other right i felt like we had, had something i wanted and mm. and then i felt like i i knew him and i certainly felt him so 
I really appreciate the conversation. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. All right, Robert. Can we get a I love you, I love you, and we're Oh, out? yeah. Can't you just use old ones? <laughs> no, you have to tell I'm me you love me every time. I'm sick time. of saying that to you. I love I you, Dad. I love you too, Danny. <laughs>